Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. This is my first time having a Nobel Prize winner on the show. Dr. Luignaro is here. He's also known as the father of Viagra. He has a new book and it's called Dr. No, and O for nitric oxide. The discovery that led to a Nobel Prize and Viagra. This one is fun. This guy is extremely witty. And the thing that really stood out on this one, he said, Tristan... Before I won the Nobel Prize, I had seven of my friends win it first. And that was just, that's amazing to me because it shows that the people you surround yourself really, really matter. We're going to go into habits. We're going to go into his life story and we're going to go into how this all happened. Jump in with me. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a Success Magazine podcast. And today I have with me Dr. Lou Inyaro, which he's also known as the father of Viagra. And I know he likes that one. I know he likes that one. He laughs at it. How are you doing, Dr. Lou? Fine, Tristan. Very, very well. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I look forward to this. Well, thanks for jumping on, man. I'm going to start off by saying the book was was very revealing about your humility, and that was that was surprising to me. I could I related so much with it because as I'm reading your progression from when you were a child discovering the the whole science aspect of your life, you kept on bringing in these amazing figures in your life from your dad to Nobel Prize winners. And I, I kept on feeling like you, the humility was just so apparent. And, and I appreciated that because we don't often see that in books. So thank you for that. Oh, you're very, very welcome. It's, it's, it's really the only way I know how to behave, whether it's in writing, whether it's in communicating with people. It's just, you know, something my parents taught me. Well, amazing, man. And I, I truly appreciate that. The book was awesome to read. By the way, if you're listening in, it's called Dr. No, which we'll get into. <laughs> Great title, man. Great title. <laughs> Playing onto the whole James Bond thing. I was like, oh, okay, got you. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Uh, but let's start. Let's start with childhood because I felt that a lot of this, this curiosity just never left. And I'm assuming you're still the same, right? That curiosity still pushes you. Oh, yes. Even though I have been retired from my uh, basic re scientific research for about six or seven years, the curiosity never leaves me. I'm always saying to myself, oh, darn it, if I had an active laboratory again, this is what I would do. And every day I come up with a new idea. But, you know, you have to retire sometimes. So now I'm devoting my time to perhaps writing some of these things that I've been through. Nice. Nice. I like it. Do you, do you still write for any scientific journals or no? 
I I don't write. Uh, sometimes I stopped this a couple of years ago. I've been asked after my retirement to write review articles or summary articles or a synopsis of some of my research or the research of others in this particular field. And I was doing that for a while. And then I stopped because, you know, when, you, when you're not actively doing research, you don't follow the literature that closely and it becomes oh. increasingly more difficult. However, I do get invited uh, very, very often to travel and speak about my work or the field. So I do a lot of that. That's how I uh, communicate about my field of research by giving lectures and so on. Nice. I like that. Well, at the at a young age, you were experimenting and you had me laughing a lot. <laughs> at the beginning of the book, I couldn't believe the things that you were attempting to do. <laughs> well, you were laughing, but I guarantee you my mother was not laughing. <laughs> I know. I could see. I was envisioning your mother being super angry and your dad Trying to calm her down and saying, he's just a kid. He's just a kid. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> Tell me about going through that and the discovery of really, really enjoying chemistry and then explosives. Like, where did that come from? Well, I, I always had a passion for, um, for chemistry. I think that started when I was seven or eight years old. And, and, and what started this off was uh, one day... Uh, my parents had taken me to look at a July 4th fireworks in Long Beach, Long Island, where we lived at the time on the beach. And I was so fascinated with the fireworks and the colors and the noise. And uh, so I decided, uh, you know, I need to make some of that stuff at home. I mean, could I do that at my age? People said, no, impossible. So I started reading about it. And I read about the chemicals, the simple chemicals that are used to make firecrackers and rocket fuel. I actually did that. I went to the public library. I read. I took notes. Uh, in those days, you could go to your pharmacy. We call them today a drugstore. But I would go to the pharmacy, and these chemicals were available to purchase because pharmacists use these in making the pills. Today, they don't make any pills except for special uh, special apothecaries, but they, you know, they buy the pills from the companies and they put them in yeah. a bottle and they sell it. So anyway, I was able to buy some of these chemicals. I made my first firecracker, which was successful. And then I graduated from there and made a larger firecracker, a more powerful firecracker. And my passion for that kind of chemistry never waned, never disappeared. I love that. And, and it's extremely apparent to, to the reader how encouraging your father was, even when he was testing out the horn and the flashlight in yes, the near exactly. dark. He's <laughs> like, I, look, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll go along with it. How important right. was that to keep pushing you and encouraging you? That, that was extremely important because my mother was concerned mainly with my safety. So blowing up firecrackers and blowing this up and that up, she she forbid that. She didn't want me to do anything like that. My father, and I learned this later in life, my father kept telling my mom, please let our son do this because don't you see, he's doing things that we don't even understand. You know, let him continue to do things. And then my mom would come back and say, 
he's going to kill himself. And if he kills himself, <laughs> I'm going to kill you, you know? And so they would fight over it. But, you know, I try to do it in a way in which it was not so damaging. But my father in life, he would always tell me, son, you know, I, I want you to grow up to be somebody. I do not want you to be a laborer, a carpenter like me. My dad never went to school. Neither did my mom for, for that matter. Neither parent ever went to school, not even kindergarten, zero. When my parents, when I was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1941, my dad spoke no English. My mom spoke very poor English. Mm -hmm. And when I started elementary school, my English was terrible. The, the teacher said, you're Italian. <laughs> I was really working from a handicapped position. So, you know, my dad just wanted me to excel. So he encouraged me to excel and begged me not to get my mother too upset. I love that. It's, <laughs> it sounds like a great childhood. <laughs> it was. Oh, oh, it, it was. I, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm one of the lucky ones. My, my parents encouraged me to do well in school, to go to school. And like I said, my father wanted me to be, you know, a doctor or a lawyer or a businessman. He wanted be, me to be anything but a politician. He didn't trust politicians. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's hard to still. So, you know, there you go. Uh, so at 14 years old, I was laughing out loud because <laughs> you made a bomb. You made dynamite, well, right? Almost not quite dynamite. The dynamite consists of the active explosives, uh, explosive is nitroglycerin. That That's is right. very dangerous. You can't buy that. Uh, you can't make that. You have to, it has to be a special procedure to make it or it explodes as soon as you add the chemicals together to make it. So I was using modified gunpowder, sulfur, Got charcoal, it and potassium nitrate or saltpeter, typical, you know, firecracker ingredients that I could buy, that I could modify and make stronger. And, you know, I wanted to see a strong, loud firecracker. And the, the, the last one that I built, and I mean the last one that I built, you're right, was a small bomb. And it did some damage, but did not hurt anybody. Yeah, I was laughing out loud because it just, the, <laughs> the, the process of experimenting after reading about Nobel, right, and his, yes. his whole yes. dynamite explosion here. Exactly. That's what I did. I read about him, and then I realized, you know, I couldn't use nitroglycerin. So I went back, and I was reading about, well, what did he use? And before he, before he used nitroglycerin, before nitroglycerin was invented, he used gunpowder different kinds of gunpowder and they were very effective you know if you use enough gunpowder and you and you put it in a, a you know tightly wrap it in a cylinder when it explodes there's great force liberated as i learned the hard way <laughs> which is a great story by the way i love it <laughs> so now now going through high school and then transitioning into college what made you decide to get into the field you got into? Because it's, it's something that I don't think is often heard of at, at that age, right? Hey, I want to be in the chemist, uh, in yes. the chemistry world. How yeah. did that transition well, into college? Because after, um, when I was through making these bombs at about 13 or 14, 
Uh, As I said, I was interested in chemistry. And so way before, years before I learned it in school, I would just read about chemistry. I also had a great interest in biology. Uh, When I was a kid, I would drive my parents crazy. I would ask them, you know, mom, dad, how, uh, how do the eyes see? What makes our ears hear sounds? How come we can taste food, but yet when we have a cold, we can't Mm -hmm. taste anything. I had these simple questions and my mom would always answer either shut up and finish your meal or, (laughs) or go out and play. You know, but my dad, my dad was always with me. You know, I don't understand son, but maybe you can learn about it. So I developed an interest Um. in biology and chemistry, both. That's pretty rare. Usually when, 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 when individuals go on to college, they either major in chemistry or biology, but rarely do they major in both. Today, it's more frequent, but I majored in both because yeah. I wanted to apply chemical principles to the understanding of how drugs affect the physiology in our bodies. So to to do that, you have to understand chemistry, right? And you have to understand biology. You have to understand the physiology. And so I was so taken by all of that. I just developed um, an insatiable desire to to just keep reading about that. I I majored in that in in college, in graduate school, in medical school, and, and after that. So that was my field. And I like to call it chemical pharmacology, which most people don't understand. But pharmacology is the study of the action of drugs and other chemicals on the body. And so I took a chemical approach rather than a biological approach to study how drugs work in the body. And, And that really paid off. Yeah, it definitely did. So I have a question. And this yeah. may catch you off guard, but... What does Nedix hot dog and an orange drink remind you of? <laughs> Nedix hot dog and an orange Nedix, drink, right? Nedix yeah, hot yeah, dog. Yeah, Nedix. Oh, this was in Penn Station when I was going to a school uh, at uh, Columbia University. Uh, there was a stand in Penn Station. I have to explain. I lived in Long Beach, Long Island, so I would take the train, the Long Island Railroad, to Penn Station in Manhattan, 34th Street, and then I would catch the subway to go uptown to Columbia University. And so coming home in the evening after a long day at work, I would come down with the subway to Penn Station, and the first thing I I would do, I was so hungry, I'd head over to Needix, and I got myself a nice hot dog, this is a very long, delicious, like Polish hot dogs with an orange drink. That was what they were known for. And I think I never missed a day where I didn't have those two. It was great. I, I love that, man. I, I took notes of that. I was like, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> now, one of the first people you talk about in the book, it was Professor Boyer. And you mentioned that he turned out to be an important influence on your research. Yes. Why, why was that? And why, how did you end up meeting him so early on? Well, I met him early on because, uh, Tristan, he was a professor of uh, chemistry and a a specific form of chemistry called enzymology. 
you know, we have lots of enzymes in the body which uh, produce many different molecules that, that, that act as signaling molecules. So he mm -hmm. was an enzymologist and a chemist. And so he taught a course called enzymology. Uh, I didn't have to take the course. <clears throat> it was something extra. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was one of those guys who believed in the more coursework, the better. You know, it's important to build up a great knowledge base. The larger your knowledge base, the easier it's going to be to draw off it to solve problems in research. So uh, many students today try to get out of taking courses. I, mm -hmm. I, I tell you, that's a serious mistake. <clears throat> You've got to take courses. So I took enzymology. It was the hardest course I ever took. This guy, Paul Boyer, Professor Paul Boyer, was so bright and so intelligent, I was <coughs> awed by him. So I studied and I studied. And just to give you an idea, I had a 79 average out of 100 when I was done with this course. And he gave me an A. Wow. <clears throat> wow. Because, it was, because it was the second highest mark in the class. It was very difficult. But just the way he did things, the way he taught, he never had any notes in front of him. He just went to the board and he wrote on the board. In those days, we had blackboards, no PowerPoints, no computers, no nothing. And so I learned that. And, and I said, you know, someday when I grow up and I start teaching, uh, I'm going to be like him. Mm -hmm. The way he approached his research influenced me dramatically. And, uh, and I kept that in mind as I was progressing throughout my own career. And the great thing about that is that many, and this was at the University of Minnesota. That's where mm -hmm. I went to graduate school, medical school, and where Paul Boyer taught me. Many, many decades later, I wound up at UCLA School yeah. of Medicine. And guess who was already there for many, many years? Paul Boyer. He had moved from Minneapolis to LA. And we got together and, uh, you know, uh, and we were going over his courses and how he gave me an A when maybe I didn't deserve it. And then luckily, one year before me in 1997, Paul Boyer was awarded the Nobel Prize in chemistry. And I ran all the way across campus to his office and we celebrated for hours. It was just so great. That's awesome. I love that. And that, that just shows that's part of what I enjoyed reading, by the way. I enjoyed the camaraderie that you showed and just, again, that, that humility that was just so apparent because the one thing that I started to understand better about your world is that nothing is done alone. It's, it all seems Correct. to be part of a bigger team. And, sure. and that was such a strong message through the whole book, along with Along with how many times you failed. Yes. And, yes. And absolutely. There was, there was one quote that you that I'm gonna read because you you said you you slightly changed it, you said. It was by Winston Churchill. Yeah. <laughs> the definition of a successful scientist is the ability to move from failure to failure without any loss of enthusiasm. And yes. I Yes. So good. I remember that from uh, way back, you know, when I was a child uh, and after World War II and so on. And one of the other uh, uh, 
quotes I think I made in the book, but it's something that I use quite a bit when I used to talk to graduate students who were undergoing problems and they felt they were going to fail in their research and maybe they picked the wrong profession and they should go into something else. And it's it's something that Nelson Mandela said not too long ago, and that is that the greatest glory in living lies not in never falling, but rising every time you fall. I mean, I just love that. And and that's how I climbed out of uh, my uh, failures. I had so many failures along the way. Dr. Liu, how, looking back now, how, how can you help those people that, that you're touching through this podcast or through your book in, in helping them through maybe a setback that they have now that they feel like is just much more that they, than they can surpass? How is it that you got past all of those consistent failures? Yeah, well, first, firstly, I think it was the, the passion I had for what I was doing. And why did I have that passion? It's, it's hard to define. I mean, uh, it was just an incredible motivation I had to answer certain questions in medicine that were not answered previously. A, a, a question that I brought up in high school to myself, but also the teachers who couldn't answer it is, I recognized in my community that so many people lived a healthy, long life till they were in their 70s or 80s, and yet an equal number of people would would die young because they had a heart attack or stroke. Mm -hmm. So why is it that some people were dying of cardiovascular disease and others were not? And I began to recognize that the ones who were healthy were thin, they were not overweight, they, they were exercising a lot, and, mm. and, and so on. Uh, and they, they, it turned out they were eating a better diet, but I didn't recognize that back then. And so I just became so motivated to answer that question. The reason I bring this up is because it's this persistent question that I asked myself throughout my career that led to my discovery of what I call the miracle molecule in the body that protects us against cardiovascular disease. I went after it and I found it. And so how can I get other people to do the same thing? Well, you've got to be motivated and you have to have a passion for what you're doing. If you don't have that passion to do a specific thing where you're not motivated, then it's much more difficult to be successful, then it may be worthwhile looking Mm -hmm. at something else. But if you believe in what you are doing and you believe that there's an answer out there, then what I say is you just have to go after it and you must never, never give up. Uh, You know, for anybody who likes baseball, another good quote is that never let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game. Babe Ruth. (laughs) I love that one. I love that. And one of the things that that was fun to read, too, was that you were at the time, and I don't know if you are now, but an avid Elton John fan. Oh, oh yes. I mean, I followed him. I've gone to many of his concerts. I've had the pleasure of uh, meeting him uh, backstage before one of his concerts in Atlanta. Uh, 
I loved his music. It, you know, he was trained. He went to the Juilliard School of Music. He, he was so well-educated. Uh, and I just loved his music. And there were a couple of tunes I really liked. The, the one that, that, <laughs> that I think I mentioned in the book, the one I really liked was uh, I'm Still Standing. And, yeah. and the reason I liked it is because back in my 60s, which is quite late in life, I started running marathons. 26.2 mile marathons Whoa. and i in those days you know they made an ipod and i would put that in in my ear and i would listen to to appropriate music with the right kind of beat to help you run 26 miles yeah. and, and and then you know you could program it the way you want and yeah. so for me, I mean, in running these marathons, when I hit mile 18 or 20, I would just hit a wall. I mean, all my energy was drained and I had to slow down and just try to keep up. And so for every every mile of the last six miles, I would play I'm Still Standing. Nice. <laughs> and when I met Elton, uh, I told him that. And at the end of his performance in Atlanta, he, he, he so kindly said, uh, I have a request, and I didn't really make the request. He said, I have a request to play uh, a tune that Professor Ignaro requested, and, and then he played it, and it was I'm Still Standing. So that made my whole day, my whole year. Dude, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. You're right. I love that. So would you say that music played a, a role in... And you working deeper? Yes, it did. It, it, it absolutely did. Because before I was running marathons, when I was doing my research, I would also play uh, that song. It was very refreshing. You know, when you're doing research and you're standing up in your laboratory at the laboratory bench and you do experiment after experiment and after experiment, and many of them fail, many of them do not work. Okay, what do you do? You can either just leave and go home and go to bed or, you know, go on a vacation, forget about your work, or you could continue to work. You could continue to stand there and work. And so I found that when I played I'm Still Standing by Elton John in the lab, that motivated me, but it also motivated my students to do the same thing. I like that. That's yeah, what I, I, that's what I figured. I wanted to ask you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we I allowed them to play music in the lab and uh, uh, normally they, they don't like when you play they meaning uh, you know the other professors, the dean or whatever. They they like the laboratory to be quiet. But you know, I did what I thought was best to motivate everybody doing research. I mean, we didn't blast the music in the hallways. No. We just played it at a low level so that everybody could hear it. Nice. I love that because that makes it you, you make learning more fun and, that you and have easier to. to easier to keep going. You, you've got to do that. All right. So I, I as I was reading this whole book, I found one sentence for me that really helped me explain what it is that that you were after and and what finally got you to to this to, to the Nobel Prize. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Tell me, tell me what you think of this, and I may be pronouncing some of these words wrong, so you know, help sure, me out. Sure, sure. Um, it says, the story was now complete. Nitroglycerin relaxes arteries and veins, 
right. by being converted in smooth muscle cells to NO, which is nitric oxide, right? Correct. That's absolutely correct. Which then stimulates the production of cyclic GMP, correct. Which, in, which in turn causes smooth muscle relaxation. Right. That's absolutely right. I tried to explain it in a way that a non-scientist could be able to, to follow it. Sometimes it's difficult <laughs> for a scientist to do that. But, but, but that's true because nitroglycerin, you see, was a drug, is still, is still a drug, and it's been used for 150 years. And nitroglycerin was discovered in Alfred Nobel's dynamite factories in the 1870s. And what was discovered is that the fumes of nitroglycerin, when the workers would breathe in the, the vapors of nitroglycerin, mm -hmm. which is volatile, they would get a, big, a tremendous headache because the blood vessels would dilate. Oh. And that causes a throbbing headache. But importantly, the, the workers who had heart disease, who suffered from angina, you know, angina pectoris, yep. chest pain, arm pain, when they worked in the factory, they had no chest pain hmm. until the weekend when they went home and they were away from the dynamite factory, their chest pains came back. So the doctors in the community figured out that nitroglycerin was a vasodilator. It widened the blood vessels and increased the blood flow to the heart so that they didn't suffer from any cardiac pain. This was great. And you, you can buy nitroglycerin tablets today, tiny, tiny tablets. People with angina take them all the time. And within 20 seconds, they relieve chest and arm pain. The thing is this. The mechanism of action of nitroglycerin as a vasodilator remained unknown for over a hundred years until my laboratory figured it out. And we discovered that nitroglycerin is metabolized or converted in our bodies, in our arteries, to another chemical called nitric oxide or NO. And it was the NO that was responsible for the vasodilation and widening of the blood vessels, which comes about when you relax the smooth muscle of the arteries. So we discovered that nitric oxide is the vasodilator. And then here's where thinking outside the box comes. I kept looking at this data and realized, oh my goodness, nitric oxide, which is a gas by the way, not mm -hmm. a liquid or a solid, it's a gas, which makes it difficult to work with. But nitric oxide was so mm, powerful in relaxing the blood vessels. And I kept saying to myself, hmm, I wonder whether our bodies can actually produce nitric oxide for the purpose of preventing hypertension and maybe preventing stroke and heart attack because it would dilate the arteries. And so that's what I went after. That was difficult work. That's what I went after. We did the experiments and we showed in 1986 that our arteries actually produce this chemical nitric oxide, the same nitric oxide that the drug nitroglycerin, if you take it, is converted to 
in the arteries. And it was that discovery, it was a first time discovery that humans can produce nitric oxide and they produce it for the purpose of protecting the cardiovascular system. That's the reason I was invited to Stockholm <laughs> to accept the <laughs> Nobel Prize. That makes sense. So I want to get to that, but there was something you mentioned when you when you figured that you had something. You're like, you know what? I think I have something here, but I want to make sure. You called, was it Dr. I can't remember, is it Vane? Yes, yes, Sir John Vane, Dr. Vane in, uh, in the UK, in England. Perfect. You called <clears throat> him and I found that, I found that surprising in a good way because a lot of so, so our our podcast is is primarily entrepreneurs and sure. business yeah. owners, and I I usually find that there's this there's this feeling like like we have to do things sometimes on our own, right? Right. And right. and I found that so cool because it just showed that you have doubts, you have doubts, right. and you wanted to sure. you wanted to run it by a, another professional that you respected. Right. That's exactly and right. And so. Tell me, tell me that pro that thought process, please. John Vane was a spectacular uh, pharmacologist. He really knew how to study uh, the actions of substances in the body. John Vane discovered other molecules that were produced in our bodies. They just they were simply were called prostaglandins. The name is not important. And by discovering these molecules, he was able to show that these molecules, when they're produced, cause a headache, they cause pain, and they cause fever. And then he remembered that the drug aspirin, which had been available for a century, what does aspirin do? Aspirin relieves pain, aspirin relieves fever. And relieves headache, of course. That's why people yeah. take aspirin. And so he, he reasoned that, okay, what if aspirin does these things because it inhibits the production of these prostaglandins, which cause pain, fever, and so on. So yeah. it took him a month or two to do the key experiments, and he discovered the mechanism of action of aspirin. Aspirin does its thing because it inhibits the formation of prostaglandins. And in 1983, he gets the Nobel Prize in medicine for that discovery. Think about it, Tristan. This is logic. The way I explained it is the way he did it. It's logical. I mean, you have to have certain facts in the back of your head, but yeah. you've got you've to think ahead. You've got to think outside the box. You have to go where other people have not gone before. Don't, yeah. follow in the, don't follow in the footsteps of others. You know, create your own footsteps, which, of course, is more difficult to do. But that's what he did. He made a brilliant discovery, gets the Nobel Prize. So I worship him because of the great scientist he is. So I had an idea that our bodies produced nitric oxide. It was a, it was it's something that my other scientific friends, you know, they thought I was crazy. So I ran this idea by Dr. John Vane. And he said, Lou, after explaining it all to him, he said, Lou, you know, 
that's how I do research. That uh, meaning, that's how he does research. He says, "If I were you, I would pursue that. If you really believe that you, our arteries can produce nitric oxide, then I advise you to go after that as hard as you can and either show that's true or not true." Well, I did what he said. It was true. And let me tell you, when I was sitting in Stockholm receiving the Nobel Prize, Dr. Vane was sitting right in back of me on the stage. It was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's, there there yeah. are some lessons there. And there, there's a reason I brought it up. Because the first lesson is uh, I'm not really exposed to the science world. This is So I, I'm reading your book and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So the ver very first thing I noticed was that it, it has a bigger sense of community than a lot of other fields out there. And, For and sure. I, I, I was very surprised in that. What about science makes it more of a, of a sharing community? Yes. So sci science has to be shared by, by everyone. That's why it's so important when people do science that they publish it in, in good journals that other scientists can read. Because what we do is... We read all the journals, we read all the articles, and we see if what other people have discovered uh, can play a role in our work. Maybe it can help us understand, you know, something else. I can tell you from personal experience and knowing people, scientists, from personal experience that no one person can do it alone. No, there's not been a single discovery that, that got the award in the Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine that was done by a single person who did everything by himself. Not even Watson and Crick, who discovered the helical structure of DNA yeah. that resulted in our chromosomes. They talked to a lot of people. They talked to one of my favorite chemists, Linus Pauling. They talked to other chemists. They talked to other biologists. They talked to people who knew how to put... Uh, it's like a tinker toy set. You can mm -hmm. buy it. You can buy... Uh, uh, um, you can buy a, a molecular modeling kit where you put together the carbons and the hydrogens and the oxygens at certain angles that are well known in chemistry, you know, to build models. Well, these guys, especially Jim Watson, uh, who I've met numerous times, he's really a hilarious guy, uh, <laughs> they were able to, to figure all that out with the help of others but with the help of others, they made the original discovery that DNA could function as a chromosome. Mm. And so they were awarded the Nobel Prize. But there's a, that's an example. You have to work together. I actually had the great opportunity of working with probably six or seven other prominent investigators who had not yet won their Nobel Prize. But I worked with them because... I needed to know more from their expertise in order to help me answer questions in my field. And I did not hesitate. You know, I mean, I, I'm not going to be ashamed to go to someone and, and ask them how to do something. Yeah. If I can't know everything. The things I didn't know, I went to the experts and asked them how to do it. And you know yeah. what I found? Not a single scientist turned me down. Everyone wanted to help me answer my question. I love that. And it's because yeah. of all of their help, again, that I 
was fortunate enough to be invited to go to Stockholm. I did not do it myself. No way. That that was super apparent, that that community. And then the second thing was that I noticed throughout your whole book, like, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you reflected upon this, so I want to ask you a question, which is my second lesson here in, in, in just the community of science. From me reading who you were hanging around with from when you were young all the way through, I was like, there's no way this guy isn't going to win a Nobel Prize, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, check out who you're hanging, who your friends are. How important is the crowd that you continually surround yourself with? It's very important. It's very important because, you know, you, you go and see someone, uh, you know they have a good laboratory, they've done good research, you read about it, you ask them if they could, if they could, help my people do certain experiments, okay? So then we do the experiments and they work. They work because <laughs> that individual helped us. But you know what the thing is though, Tristan, a few years later, you read in the newspaper or hear on the radio or TV that the say, that person who helped you was just awarded the Nobel Prize. That happened yeah. to me seven times. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like it happened more because I was yeah, reading I used to one. ask. I used to ask myself, I would never bring this up with other people. I would sit back and say, my goodness. Well, I wouldn't use those words, but there are words I, I did use that I can't say here. But I would, sit <laughs> there, I would sit there and say, I've been working with all these people and they have been awarded a Nobel Prize. When the hell am I going to get a Nobel Prize? <laughs> That's <laughs> well, funny. I realized, though, in the late 1980s, as I mentioned earlier, when we discovered that our bodies produce nitric oxide, which we also showed prevents hypertension, stroke, and heart attack, that's when I knew the day would come. Everybody else did too, and they said, oh, you know, uh, Professor Ignaro, don't worry, the day will come when you get the Nobel Prize. And I said, well, you know, I'm not worried, and please don't keep putting that pressure on me. You know, when the day <laughs> comes, the day comes. And the day came, and I was so happy I got the prize for one important reason, no more pressure. That's funny. Believe no more pressure. No more pressure. Well, how did it feel to, to get the news? Because I read it, but how, tell me, how did that feel? Oh, it, 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 it was the greatest feeling because, you know, I, like many other good scientists and thousands who do not get the prize, I mean, I killed myself, uh, but I, I loved it, though. I worked very hard. I loved it. I never regretted it. I wanted more. I wanted more. But I worked very hard uh, and, and made a, a lot of important discoveries. One important one we haven't even addressed yet, yeah. uh, and and uh, and so you know everybody wants to be rewarded for their accomplishments, right? I mean, yeah. there's no individual out there who doesn't want to be rewarded. You know, when I was teaching students, I wanted to be rewarded. I mean, uh, how do you get rewarded? when you teach students. And believe me, I spent as much time teaching students as I did working in the lab. The way you get rewarded teaching students is when the students rate your course the number one course in the medical school. Yeah. That's the reward. There's no money. That's the reward. But in research, 
and research, what is the reward? The reward is recognition by your peers that you did a pretty damn good job, buddy. And that's what the Nobel Prize means. That's, that makes sense. So now you get a question from Jake Rajfer or Rajfer. Yeah, Rafer, Rafer. Rafer. All right. Yeah, Here's the okay, question. Here's the question. He goes, so Lou, yeah. do you know what causes penile erection? <laughs> and, that, and that leads you into a whole different yes. world. Tell me yes. about that. It's really funny. You know, when I wrote that line, the editor for my publisher said, you know, I don't think you really should say that in the, in the book. It's too crude. <laughs> that and was I, the best. <laughs> and I said, that stays or I look for a new publisher. How's that? And so it stayed. He asked me, Lou, you know, what causes, how do you get a penile erection? And of course, what he meant by that is what is the mechanism of a penile erection? And, you know, back we made the discovery, an important discovery, in 1990. It's not that long ago. What is that, 30 yeah. years ago? It, in 1990, there was no known physiology. What causes an erection was not known. Every mm -hmm. organ in the body has mm -hmm. nerves, okay? And the nerves attach to an organ, and every nerve releases a chemical. It happens to be called a neurotransmitter. That mm -hmm. makes sense. Think about it. Well, neurotransmitters in the brain and the periphery were well known, but the neurotransmitter released from the nerves that attach to the erectile tissue in the male penis was unknown. And uh, because it was unknown, we had no idea what causes impotence or erectile dysfunction. Can't How believe. could you know that if you don't even know what causes erection in the first place? Yeah. So I kept thinking about this and I kept thinking about this. Uh, 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 Jake Rafer was a urologist, not really a researcher. And so he wanted to know if anything I was working with could be a neurotransmitter that we were looking for, that the urologists were looking for. And so I said, no, probably not. I said, <clears throat> nitric oxide is a gas and it's probably, you know, it, it, it can't work as a neurotransmitter. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then I went and I thought about it and I went to the library and I looked up the kinds of nerves that attach to the erectile tissue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I didn't fully understand the nerves, but I do remember that a friend of mine in England was studying similar nerves that happened to be in the brain. Mm -hmm. And he discovered that he thought, he didn't discover, but he, he, made, he suggested that the nerves in the brain in certain regions release nitric oxide mm. as a transmitter. And then I'm thinking, hmm, if the nerves in the brain can release nitric oxide, maybe the nerves in the periphery of the body, like the ones going to the penis, could also release nitric oxide. And then I'm thinking, what does nitric oxide do? It's a vasodilator. It widens the arteries so that the arteries become engorged with blood. There's increased blood flow. 
Well, guess what, folks? That's what an erection is. The erectile <laughs> tissue fills up with blood because the arteries are dilated. And so to make a long story short, with his aid, Jake Rafer, we did the experiments in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. And in no time at all, we discovered that the long-awaited neurotransmitter was our friend, nitric oxide. And we published this in, in a very prestigious journal uh, mm-hmm. called the New England Journal of Medicine. It's the only paper I ever published in that incredibly uh, profound clinical journal. And, and, and that led to mm-hmm. worldwide attention because everybody reads that, that journal. Got it. And so one of, the, uh, one of the pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, picked up on that publication we had. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have hundreds of people making drugs. They have hundreds of people testing <clears throat> drugs. To make a long story short, they went after mm-hmm. that and they discovered and made a drug that works by increasing the action of nitric oxide in the penis. And folks, I think you know what that drug is. It's called <laughs> Viagra. That's right. They That's right. followed my research and discovered sildenafil, which is the chemical name for Viagra. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, if, if, and they've told me many times, believe me, that if it wasn't for my work, my discoveries published in the New England Journal of Medicine, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have Viagra today. So, um, so it's great. I, I, I hold that as, a, <laughs> as that an awesome. accomplishment. I think it is. It's an amazing accomplishment just to to help us understand that whole process. I have a question. Does, is nitric oxide, since it increases blood flow, does it, does it have a big play in adrenaline? Like when you, when you have an adrenaline rush, do we release is that play into yeah. that? A you lot know, that, that's an incredibly good question, Tristan. Really, it, it, it shows you know your physiology, but 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 the answer is no. And the, let me explain. Adrenaline, which is actually the British term for epinephrine, right? You've heard oh, of EpiPen, yeah. right? Yep. Epinephrine. Yep. Epinephrine is the English term for adrenaline. They're both the same. No so way. Epinephrine or adrenaline is also a vasodilator. Nitric oxide is not the only vasodilator in the body. We have many different kinds. Adrenaline is a very important one because adrenaline is released from your adrenal glands, right? Adrenaline, adrenal, comes from your adrenal glands when you get excited or when when you're running or when you see a a, a tiger chasing you, you've got to jump up and take off. Well, that's where the adrenaline works. Uh, It's a vasodilator. Nitric oxide is a more slowly acting vasodilator. And, you know, and that's what makes sense in penile erection. You know, you don't have to break a record by getting an erection within a quarter of a second. (laughs) Just slow development. And that, I know it's funny, but, you know, this is what I talk about in urology. (laughs) It makes such good sense that nitrogen should be the neurotransmitter. (laughs) Yeah, it wouldn't work if it was part of the adrenal gland. (laughs) If if adrenaline were the neurotransmitter, uh, it it could kill you, you know. We would be in trouble. 
<laughs> That's funny. So, look, if you were still doing this this heavy research, what would you study if you could? Like, what 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 attracts you right now? Well, I think that uh, this is what attracts me. Uh, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I probably would get into that area. What we know today from neuroscientists and from other biologists is that every cell in the body makes nitric oxide. And, and we do know the functions of nitric oxide in so many parts of the body. We also know that the brain contains more nitric oxide and more molecules associated with nitric oxide, one of which you mentioned earlier, cyclic GMP. The brain is loaded with nitric oxide and related uh, 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 machinery, if I may use that phrase. But we have no idea why the brain is loaded with nitric oxide. We have no idea what it does. The only, the only function that we know about, but it's not been absolutely proven, is that nitric oxide functions to improve our memory and stimulate information recall. We know that people with dementia, especially Alzheimer's disease, have reduced levels of nitric oxide in certain regions of the brain that are involved in memory. And so companies, uh, biotech companies, are trying to develop drugs that would stimulate nitric oxide formation or increase its action in those regions of the brain so that we could help those people with dementia. I would get into that if I was going to go in the lab again, but I would also go after the hundred other areas in the brain that use nitric oxide as a neurotransmitter, and we don't know why. You know, that's, that's the future. I mean, that's, you can't follow anybody in, into doing that work because no one has set those initial footsteps as well. And one of the reasons I was successful in my work is I like, as I said before, to create the footsteps. In other words, I like to go where people haven't gone before. And um, so to answer your question, that's what I would do. The nitric oxide is in the brain for a reason. It's not just sitting there doing nothing. Believe me, it's got to be doing so many different things that are important for our health. And we just don't know. We don't know enough. Do any foods enhance the production of nitric oxide that you know? Oh, oh sure. Oh, oh, yeah. This is one of the things that the uh, Nobel Prize in dealing with nitric oxide uh, in 1998 stimulated was that we, we, everybody asked a question. Okay, now we know that nitric oxide is important for our health. We know it's critical for cardiovascular health. We know this, we know that. Okay, so the obvious question is, how do we increase it? How do we increase nitric oxide in our body? Is there anything that we know about that decreases nitric oxide, which would not be good? And so what we, we meaning the scientific community, not me, thousands of people got into this, thank God. So we know two things, I'll make it brief, unless you have other questions. Healthy, balanced diet will boost the production of nitric oxide markedly. Physical activity. 
I can use the word exercise, but when I say exercise, people kind of look the other way because they don't want to do exercise. So -hmm. that's why I say physical activity. So physical activity and a healthy, balanced diet, both, especially together, boost nitric oxide. You know, for thousands of years, it has been known that physical activity is good for your health. Mm -hmm. But the reason for that did not become apparent until about 20 years ago when it became very clear that nitric oxide is one of the answers. Because when you exercise, when you run, when you play tennis, football, swim, anything you do, you increase blood flow in your body, right? Because your heart is pumping faster. Well, when the blood flows through your arteries, that signals the arteries to make a lot more nitric oxide. Mm. Why, why is that? Well, you want to dilate the blood vessels to your exercising muscles to bring in more blood, therefore more oxygen, therefore more nutrients to your muscle. Every time you exercise, you make more NO. But keep in mind that that same nitric oxide works not only in those blood vessels, but it works throughout your body. Your whole body's making NO. So there you're making NO to lower your blood pressure, to prevent stroke, prevent heart attack, prevent diabetes. So therefore, it's very logical, the more exercise you engage in, the lower the risk you'll have for cardiovascular disease. So physical activity is very important. That makes total sense. I love that. All right. You know, a couple sci- science always makes sense. Tristan. Science wins. Science is common sense. Science wins. Science is very convincing. And most importantly, science matters. Got to pay attention to science. So what what type of books do you read? Are you just diving into these scientific journals or do you read? Since I stopped doing research, let me tell you, uh, I, I it's been a pleasure to get away from a lot of that scientific reading because uh, I did it for 60 years. Okay. Now I follow my field. You know, I still give lectures. I do this. I, 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 I'm on, uh, I do a lot of things online because of COVID, but now I'm going to start traveling again in June. I'm going to Germany and I'm going to be giving a lot of lectures on, on nitric oxide, but I've decided to read other things and also to watch a little bit more TV you know, I, I kept hearing people talk about Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and Hulu, <laughs> and I would never watch these things. And now I have to say, give me a glass of red wine and a good show on Amazon, and I'm great for two hours. I mean, it's just relaxing. I mean, that that's that's what I, I like to do. But as far as reading goes, uh, yeah, well, you know, I have discovered a whole bunch of books written by an author, his name is James Patterson, and he writes all these um, mystery stories, especially involving a detective whose name is Dr. Alex Cross. And I, he didn't ask me to do this. That guy makes a, <laughs> enough money. He doesn't need my plug. But I, I just love to read those books because it's relaxing. It takes my mind off the daily pressures. And actually, then I'm able the next morning to think science. I'll go and do my science research, you know, reading and so on with a much clearer mind. I love that. This great comment. Good ending. Is there anything, Dr. Lou, that that you wanted to mention that I may not have touched on? 
No, I, the only thing I, I, I would love uh, people to, to consider is, you know, go to Google, your favorite search engine, and look at the, and look at the advantages. L look at what nitric oxide can do in your body. And although you may not want to, you know, um, change your diet or engage in physical activity, keep, keep looking for the evidence uh, as to what certain foods can do to your nitric oxide and what physical activity can do. And you'll see that there's so many incredibly tasty foods that will boost your nitric oxide and, and eat more of those rather than the, you know, foods that can decrease your nitric oxide, like saturated fats and lots of salt, things like that. Uh, I think that you'll really benefit from that. You know, you might know, since you know so many people, I just started reading, well, I'm almost done, actually. This other book, uh, James Goodwin, PhD, it's Supercharge Your Brain. Yes, yes, yeah, I haven't read that. I haven't read that, but there are, uh, uh, you know, several good books on, uh, on, on the brain. You just reminded me of that, as you, you mentioned that. We should Google a lot more uh, nitric oxide. So yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. How do you like your Apple Watch, Dr. Lou? Oh, you see, yeah, I, I love it because it tells me, it tell, it's right now, you know what it's telling me right now? It's time to stand. There you go. <laughs> I've been sitting too long. <laughs> me too. <laughs> so I love this watch. It really helps me reach my goals in terms of physical activity every day. I love it. Well, thank you for your time, Dr. Lou. We appreciate what you've done for, for planet Earth, for all us humans, and <laughs> continue to, to just be amazing. I love it. Thank you very much, Tristan. It's really been a great pleasure to be on your podcast. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it. <laughs>